welcome to this week's social action briefing thanks for listening uh i am craig milch i am a second year uh, student in getting my master's in social work at stony brook university school of social welfare i'm here with jessica mitchell a professor at the school hi jess hey craig and alexandria hannah uh a classmate of mine also second well Actually, Alex, introduce yourself, please. And uh, you're doing a special, special program, so that I don't want to like uh, misexplain. So please. No worries. Um, hi everyone. I'm Alexandra Hanna. I am a, I guess you could say like a second year MSW student. I'm in the dual degree um, social work and public health program. So this is my last year. Yeah. So I'll be graduating with everyone in May. And first time on the podcast, and I'm so excited to be here. So thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us. And um, Alex has also been helping out um, with the social media. Um, once it's once it like really gets into gear, that's going to be her doing the the state of it right now. You can blame on me, but um, but yeah. So we can't all get at everything, Craig. It's a, it's perfectly <laughs> fine. And I just want to say we just have a bunch of overachievers on this podcast, dual degree programs, law school, like so many different things going on. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, and our, you know, as always, our social media is uh, at SAV underscore podcast on Instagram and the Twitter. Um, so let's just get into our updates. Um, we can start sort of with the the debt ceiling, which sort of has had a breakthrough today. We're recording this on uh, Wednesday night, October 6th. Um, so, you know, the position of uh, Republicans uh, on the debt ceiling has been to not only not provide assistance to the Democrats to uh, either suspend or raise the debt ceiling, but they've been filibustering uh, in the Senate. Um, and again, the debt ceiling is a limit on, you know, what the U.S. can pay out and it needs to be raised to meet the obligations that already, uh, you know, have been made, money that's already been spent. It's just paying our bills, essentially. Um, and if we don't, uh, there's the markets are going to suffer, people are going to suffer, the government's going to have to choose what debts to default on or, you know, so not good I stuff. I think a really good way to explain this is it's it's essentially the federal government raising its own credit card limit. It brings it into really day-to-day terms to understand. It's it's it, a very simplistic way of explaining it is we are accruing interest on the debt that we've taken out. We have a maximum amount of debt that we're allowed to take out right now. And if we don't raise that limit, our interest is going to exceed what we are allowed. And we are not going to be able to maintain paying the bills that we have at this moment. And it's also, also, it's not like to think of it, that is helpful in terms of like the mechanism. But what's really important is that like the United States budget is not like a person's budget. So it's like Jeff Bezos raising his credit card from like 20,000 to 50,000 when he has $200 billion. Like as long as there's stuff like, you know, it's not, we're not approaching any sort of 
uh, actual like spending limit on the U.S.'s part. Like, like, uh, like we, people have been saying for decades and decades um, in certain schools of economic thought, like if we can do it, we can pay for it. So if the if we have capacity to give people paid sick leave, you know, we can pay for it. If we have capacity for for you know children not to be poor in this country you know we can pay for it but that's sort of bleeding into the reconciliation discussion before we get there what's gone on with the debt limit is today um mitch mcconnell said he would agree i think to just not filibuster um a two-month suspension of the debt limit so the whole thing being that you know um letting it go to december which of course prolongs the crisis uh, or it just no, it pushes the crisis down the lo- down the road. So we have another one in December. Um, he's doing it because he wants Democrats to raise the debt ceiling in reconciliation, so that can they can say, "Hey, look, the Democrats raised the debt limit. They're responsible spenders." Mm-hmm. Whereas it's an it's a dumb, arbitrary thing that shouldn't exist. I think Denmark's the only other country that has it, and their debt limit is so high that it's like not. It's like, you know, not reachable. So it's a dumb thing and it's dumb to have gamesmanship over like crashing the economy um, and harming like the U.S.'s credit rating. So it's all very stupid still. But it seems like some progress. (laughs) It's really I mean, it really just is a political game and it is prolonging this because we're just going to have to continue having this discussion for another two months. And while you talk about, you know, really interesting programs, it's really important to remember that all we're discussing when we discuss the debt ceiling is money that we have already spent. Like this is not creating new programs. This isn't spending more money. It's not like we're just pulling things out of our hat that we say we want to do. Like this is our obligation to pay money back to various different places um, and to various different creditors. And if we don't do this soon, we are just going to go into an economic freefall. If we default on it, we are, you know, the biggest you know, economy and and one of the biggest spenders and we have to pay back our debts, but this is debt that we already accumulated. Um, And that's just something that people have to remember. This isn't new stuff. Um, And a lot, about half of this debt was accumulated under the last president. If you look back historically, it's always under Republican administrations that we are ending up with more debt because they're cutting taxes for the very wealthy and not cutting spending at the same time. Um, and while a lot of Democrats end up raising the taxes a little bit on the super wealthy, it's never back to what the level was before. And this is the super wealthy. This is money that none of us are ever going to make, even if we win the lottery five times in our life. Like they are cutting taxes on the Jeff Bezos of the world and and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. They're not cutting taxes even on like the rich uncle that you're thinking about right now that might be harmed by this. It's not that person. That's not what they're doing. Um, that leads us to these consistent problems over time. Yeah. And um, so Alex, as someone who's been like less obsessed with this, but is sort of on the way to it, are, are, are we, uh, how, you know, is this, do you think we're being, we're, we're sort of clear on like what this issue is? Yes. 
Yes, I'll say, um, <laughs> I'm definitely getting a much clearer understanding of what's going on. I'm also like on the Googler, like trying to like fill in the gaps, but I'm definitely getting caught up on it. Like whenever you like, so if we default on our debt, that means like there's no Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, like none of that is going to happen, correct? Yeah, well, I mean, there's so many different things that would be spent that that like, that the government needs to pay on then and like they would gradually over time um have like run out of money but like they could prioritize uh you know making the medicare payments or they might prioritize people with you paying people with us bonds so like it wouldn't it wouldn't be that everything would like just go away immediately but they'd have to start choosing like what not to pay and then those and all of those programs would be you know in jeopardy so which um, one um, defaulting on our debt or the government shutdown because i know we just avoided that a few weeks ago too yeah so that i mean it's a, it's a similar um it's well a similar no the debt ceiling is, yeah it's, it's like it is similar it's not exactly yeah. the same like the debt ceiling would be pretty catastrophic because it would kill yeah. like the u.s credit rating whereas when we just shut down the government we just stop current spending but but we pay back our debts. Like there's a lot of things that get cut, but it's a similar situation in that we have to make choices when we shut down the government, like emergency services stay. So like FEMA is still funded. The military is still funded, but you know, they always have to like write in these caveats of like, okay, we're still going to pay social security, but they send their workers home, you know, they send the non-essential workers home and they don't get paid. And this was a huge problem, especially during the 2013 shutdown where we were closed for three weeks. Um, I think that federal workers ended up not getting paid once, but then once under Trump, we missed the deadline to pay federal workers twice because they only get paid twice a month. So there were essential workers that were showing up to work and not getting their paychecks. Oh, man. Yeah. So it's like, I'd say it's like similarly stupid. Um, and just like the debt ceiling would, is just more catastrophic, like Jess said. Um so and then okay so then the latest on um on reconciliation so last week was this like artificial deadline to vote on the infrastructure package which you know roads bridges broadband not climate and not any of the other um programs like the child tax credit paid family leave um improving medicare to include uh vision uh, dental and hearing for seniors, and also um, allowing Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices, um, and you know for Medicare, but then also for everyone because it would allow certain versions anyway. We'd have to see which ones actually were put in place, but the best version allows like private insurers to use those same prices, so you know costs go down for everybody. Um, so there was this artificial deadline for the bipartisan infrastructure last week. The progressives, um, you know, led by the, in the house, led by the chair, Pramila Jayapal of Washington, a former activist um, turned congresswoman. Um, they said they weren't gonna vote for it without, you know, some kind of agreement on reconciliation with all the good stuff in it. And because um, Nancy Pelosi doesn't like to bring things to a vote that aren't going to pass. That didn't. It wasn't brought to a vote, even though uh, Josh Gottheimer, like the key 
like conservative Democrat who's like trying to throw a wrench into like what 96% of the party is in line with, like he was sort of responsible for the, um, the, the like deadline on the vote. He was saying he's a thousand percent confident it's going to pass all this. It didn't. But now we're in a stage where um, that mansion and cinema are sort of, I think, starting to actually negotiate. Um, today, Bernie Sanders had like a press conference and was saying like, you know, Joe Manchin, you don't want to do reconciliation because you don't want an entitlement society. Well, what are we not entitled to? Are we not entitled to, you know, children not being poor for you know people on Medicare not being able to have hearing aids to hear their, their family members? You know, people can't have paid, like we're, we're not entitled to paid sick leave. We're the only country that doesn't have it. So the gauntlet has sort of been thrown down there. Um, and there's sort of, so this, this number of 1.5 trillion is being thrown about, uh, you know, the whole thing started at 5 trillion, went down, you know, there was some agreement on 3.5. And then after Exxon came out against reconciliation, Joe Manchin wants a strategic pause. And now the number is like 1.5 that's being floated. Um, there's like a letter that Manchin signed with Chuck Schumer saying he would go along with 1.5 trillion. So there are sort of three main like uh, tracks that were like strategies for what to do if it is 1.5 trillion. So what Joe Manchin would prefer is to just make everything less generous. So like the benefits like smaller and worse and, you know, make them available to less people and then probably take out a bunch of stuff, like anything that hurts a fossil fuel company or like rich people or whatever, um, just shrinking it down and making it worse. Then there's the second, which I think is great. This is the best option. So there's my bias, but basically the 3.5 trillion um, is over 10 years. If you, over, and if, you, if you just have all of the same programs fully funded, for three years, um, that would only cost one trillion. So you could basically do the equivalent of like a the five trillion version with with the one point five trillion over three years. And the convenient timing of that is that uh, everything would be set to expire before a presidential election. So you know Republicans would you know there'd be a lot of pressure on Republicans to extend all these programs, which would hopefully be very popular by then. Um, so that's why I like this because it, it's I feel like it has the best chance of you know having all the good stuff and and you know having it long term. Then the the third um, that some advocate for is to just pick a couple uh, of programs and you know fully fund them um, and you know just just do less but do those fewer things really well. Which I mean that would be cool I guess. But I like option two. What do you guys think of, of the three options? I like option four, where Manchin <laughs> is no longer a sitting senator and things can actually get done. Okay. And then I'm guessing that would mean that like John Fetterman is a is a senator and like uh the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin is a senator and you know, because <laughs> We're not doing it with 49 Democrats in the Senate, that's for sure. 
No, I I understand that. But when you when you actually have a majority and are completely incapable of getting anything done because of someone within your own party, it's just like, why why are you really there? Yeah, it's very frustrating. And I mean, one of the things that Manchin did say was like, hey, if you want to spend more money, like elect more liberal senators, like I'm not that guy, which that was like, that was like the most like, okay, fair enough, Joe type of thing that he's said, you know, in my, in my opinion, but I don't know, like, I don't know, option four doesn't, uh, Huh? I get it. It's the world. It's like, unfortunately, the world that we've been handed. But at the end of the day, when your entire job, when one of 100 people and your entire job is literally to just stop progress, like, just leave at that point. But since that isn't an option, I honestly think the best option is putting things in place where it's, you know, requiring people to do things right before a presidential election, because everyone gets more generous right before a presidential election, regardless of their thoughts beforehand, because they understand that they need to do something in a presidential year. Yeah. And this, um, so the, basically the, the article that I read that sort of outlined these three things was by Eric Levitz in New York magazine and he, and the, the person responsible for advancing that, um, you know, do everything for three years and make them, you know, you know, extend it before a presidential election. It's this guy, Carlos Mucha. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. M-U-C-H-A. He's like a blogger and a lawyer, like not like just sort of a guy on Twitter, I guess, or he's a blogger. So thank you, Carlos. Um, so, and, oh, and let's not, you know, we're talking about Manchin. We got to talk about the worst social worker in America, Kristen Cinema, because um, at least Joe Manchin is for lowering drug prices, he said, but Cinema isn't. Um, and uh, I don't want to talk about the thing in the bathroom because I think the whole thing is stupid. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> any, any other thoughts on this before we move on? I'm trying to understand why, like, if, Everyone's a Democrat, like, what position is on it? If, if everyone's a Democrat, that what? Like, why are they still in the bill? Like, if we're all supposed to be on the same page, and if, you know, all these programs are going to help Americans out, you know, get us better footing, like, be very yeah. progressive. I mean, it's sort of a mystery. Like, uh, if I had to wager, it's that. I mean, so the reason why Joe Manchin's not going along is, I mean, the 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 um, giving him the most credit reading of it is that he's just a conservative guy with shitty conservative views. There's also the fact that he makes like six figures off of the fossil fuel industry every year, and I'm pretty sure that like Exxon gives him money, like like so. There's that, and then side with your other keep starving children starving yeah exactly um and cinema started getting big donations recently from pharmaceutical companies like i really think that's it and like she's also clearly like considers herself some sort of like iconoclast like in the john mccain mold and like she's she's courting republican votes but 
um, an independent boats in Arizona, but like uh, this was pointed out on another podcast uh, that she like she was the first Democrat to win statewide in Arizona in a very long time, but then Mark Kelly did, and then Biden won it. So like it's not you're not some like political genius, Kirsten Cinema. You're just like our you know, like you were in the seat just riding the wave that's what it was like it was a wave that had started before she ran and yeah yeah full credit for she's trying to take credit for uh yeah for for riding the wave um so we yeah and and the whole thing you know the whole thing with you know, the people protesting and falling into the bathroom. What really bothered me about that is one of the articles reminded us that she teaches uh, in the social work school at ASU. And that's just very unfortunate. Um, So moving on, um, a really fun, exciting bit of news um, this week was that the post office has started piloting um, a postal banking program. So to sort of step back on postal banking, um, this is something that the that we had uh, from like 1911 to 1965, where people could do basic banking functions. Um, in the post office. Um, It was actually the first means of banking that was backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government before the FDIC was formed. Um, It it was like it went away because of like inflation or like the inflation crisis and something with the banks, but we haven't had it since the 60s. But what's good about it, um, you know, there's 7 million uh, unbanked people um, in the United States. And because they're unbanked, they have to do things like go to check cashing places. They need to take payday loans. Um, so postal banking would make uh, banking very, and some of them just don't live close enough to a branch. Um, so one thing you know that's good about the postal banking is that there are so many uh, you know, po- post offices that you know people mostly live near one. So grant just physical access to banks. Um, and then they could provide services like cashing checks, um, you know, providing checking and savings accounts, low fee ATMs, money transfers, um, which, you know, there it, it does international uh, transfers currently to like Latin America. So that's something that it already does. Um, they could do like refillable USPS debit cards. So what, what started this week, um, oh, not, no, it wasn't this week. It was a month ago or almost a month ago. Back in September 13th, the pilot launched. The article came out this week. Um, but it, it started in Washington, D.C., Falls Church, Virginia, Baltimore, and the Bronx with one location um, allowing people to essentially cash their checks, their paychecks, um, onto uh, a debit card. Um, the fee is, uh, I think $5 and 50 cents, um, which is cheaper than 
um, a lot of check cashing places. Um, Walmart can sometimes, Walmart is still cheaper sometimes. So one thing I think it was either uh, Senator Gillibrand from New York or I think or was Marissa Baradaran, who is a, a law professor who wrote The Color of Money, forget who it was. One of them was saying like, you know, if you're going to do this, it should be cheaper than Walmart. So they're not quite there yet, but they're cheaper than a lot of places. So people um, can use, you know, those debit cards and it, it was done by executive action. Um, the, a lot of post offices already sold debit cards. So like they didn't have to sort of reinvent the wheel or or like have questionable legal authority. So it's starting small, but, you know, from here there can be, you know, they can keep track of people's accounts, like sort of like Venmo and sort of branch off to start, you know, give people sort of like some semblance of a bank account. Um, there's talk of potentially doing like small consumer loans to compete with, you know, payday lenders. So, you know, um, it's a very progressive, you know, it's been a progressive uh, like goal and ideal for years now, and it's finally happening. And what's weird about it is that it, this started under Louis DeJoy, who was the postmaster general appointed by Trump, who's famous for trying to sabotage the post office um, and like, you know, so that it has to be privatized. Um, apparently he likes this. Um, he's gone along with it, you know, so he's been fighting like with the post postal workers union tooth and nail over the sabotage, but they've also, you know, separated this out and had positive negotiations, um, apparently because he sees this as complementary with the USPS's business in packages, which is, you know, with the internet and, and everything, <laughs> the internet and everything, that's such a widely encompassing thing, but um, <laughs> regular, regular like letters has decreased, uh, but packages like, you know, Amazon and whatnot has gone up. So he sees the future of the, of the postal service as, you know, expanding packaging business. Banking's also a way to make money. And also the money transfer things, like I mentioned before, that, it, that the post office does international money transfers to some Latin American countries. They were going to try to do away with that. And DeJoy actually uh, like made sure that it, that, that we kept it. So, so yeah, this good progressive thing is happening under Louis DeJoy. It's, it's pretty wild. I mean, it can happen sometimes. And, and while I would love for it to be cheaper than Walmart, it's also important to remember that, you know, not everyone even has access to a Walmart. Um, there's a lot of them, but they're not everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's really just about getting people away from these predatory businesses, these for-profit corporations that are really just screwing people out of their money and charging fees just to cash, cash a check and, and getting people into a lot of check cashing places will also do the payday loans in the same place. So if it's a place that you're going all the time and seeing the advertising for, um, you know, it makes it really easy to just like suck people in. So getting people away from these places is really important, not that the government needs to just by default be trusted or the assumption, you know, the assumption shouldn't be that they're always doing what is correct. It's safer than going to a for-profit corporation that has a pretty clear history of 
just screwing people out of their own money. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously banks don't like it because they don't want to be undercut, you know, by the post office. I mean, I think that's, that's why, you know, postal banking, one of the reasons postal banking, you know, was, you know, we lost it in the sixties and it's another, you know, it's also why the post office is under constant threat of being privatized because companies don't like having to compete with the government that can do things cheaper. So, but, you know, to me, like I've, I, you know, postal banking has always sort of seemed like, like, yeah, another idea that makes perfect sense and would be really helpful, but like, where's the political will to actually do it? And then it pops up under the joy. So that was a nice, pleasant surprise. Um, which, you know, they can be few and far between these days. Um, so, yeah. And does this, does this, are we making sense, Alex, you think? Yeah, yeah, I'm there. definitely following <laughs> it. Um, it's actually really funny because I actually work at a bank and I just realized that a lot of our fees went up and I was like, like our non-customer check cashing fee just went up and I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be great like you know get your mail in you know do your banking all in one spot and yeah definitely like cutting um you know like the big businesses out that honestly don't care about most people anyway you know like they only care about like you know like people who have like was it like a billion dollar in their account anyway <laughs> so I mean yeah. like yeah then plus like you know I mean people jobs is always good yeah yeah and you know this is also like a, a racial equity thing because obviously who's victimized and you know uh preyed on by check cashing places and payday lenders the most you know it's communities of color you know marginalized communities the low low income communities and you know people that get the the short end of the stick constantly in our country so um so hopefully you know these pilots i mean it's you know four locations in all of america now so hopefully it, it expands in the future um i don't have a good segue for our next topic um so we're just going to talk about the supreme court a little bit um there's been a lot of criticism of the supreme court um you know lately and i mean I mean, it hasn't it hasn't really stopped since uh, Merrick Garland was denied a a hearing. Um, but what's what's new is that the justices have started to sort of complain about the criticism they've been getting. Um, I think it was Clarence Thomas who complained about it at the Mitch McConnell. I don't know if it was, it was Alito or Thomas, I forget, but somebody at the Mitch McConnell Center at uh, the U uh, at the at Louisville was complaining about the accusations of the court being politicized. Um, I know Breyer, the liberal justice, on his book tour about how uh, sacrosanct the Supreme Court is, has been complaining about being criticized. Amy Coney Barrett at uh, Notre Dame uh, was complaining about it. Um, recently Chris Hayes on his show was saying, making the point that the fact they're being defensive shows that 
the criticisms, you know, are getting to them. Um, Steve Vladek, who is one of the most outspoken critics of the court, um, talks, he's talking a lot about the shadow docket. He's coming out with a book about the shadow docket. Um, I think he's a professor at University of Texas, or at least a university in Texas, um, came out with a piece saying, you know, that he's a vocal critic, but it's not, he doesn't necessarily want the institution to change in terms of like packing the court or term limits. He just, there, there's just like a crisis of legitimacy um, in the Supreme Court. Um, and then there was an op-ed in the New York Times um, by Donald Ayer, who was a, he was the U.S. attorney and principal uh, deputy solicitor general in the Reagan administration, the solicitor general being the lawyer that argues the most, argues for the government and the Supreme Court. Um, and he's deputy attorney general in the George H.W. Bush administration. So he was saying he was a part of this Reagan revolution uh, that pitted itself against activist judges um, who were basically, you know, not they're they're acting more in like on their beliefs than um, than precedent and the Constitution and whatnot. But he's since then seen that it's actually the right wing that's been doing that, and he listed out um, a number of recent rulings. Um, some, I don't know if they're all in the shadow docket or not, but, um, that have just sort of gone against precedent and he's sort of like sounding the alarm and it's sort of, it's pretty notable to come from, you know, a guy of, of this pedigree, um, to, you know, also say that there's a, a you know, a, a crisis, a, you know, a crisis of legitimacy on the court. I don't think this is the first time we've really had a crisis of legitimacy. I think it's just coming in a time where we have more access to the court than we've had before, as we have more access to everything in life because of the internet and social media and just the ability to know what's going on in an instant instead of having to wait for tomorrow's newspaper. Um, but I mean, we can see through history how there the Supreme Court isn't a place for social change. Typically the court upholds whatever bias is going on at the time, primarily because the Supreme Court has nearly always been nine, eight, nine, ten, 10, depending on the number at the time, old white men who come from the same pedigree, who come from the same schools and the same lifestyle, um, it's just really unfortunate that we're still not learning from history, mostly because we don't understand history and we are repeating the same things over and over again and seeing a time when there is just so much reversal of what the court has already decided in an effort to backtrack on civil, political, and human rights. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what's striking is that what's going on now, you know, I mean, so the, I guess, well, I guess what the Reagan revolution folks would say is that the Warren court in the 50s and the 60s were, act, you know, judicial activists and 
we're going by, you know, the will of the people instead of precedent or whatever to advance civil rights. But right now, it's these conservative justices that for all of them have certain like um, questions of their own legitimacy of being there, you know, Kavanaugh and Barrett just being the most recent examples in your class, Jess, we watched the movie about the, um, the, the confirmation of Clarence Thomas, who, you know, had, he sexually harassed multiple people, but Anita Hill was the one that spoke up about it. Um, but what they're, so they're, they're also sort of, you know, going by sort of their own ideology a little bit, but their ideology doesn't represent the will of the majority. It represents the will of like the 30, like 30% of the country, like a, like a white supremacist minority, essentially. So that's what, I mean, that's what makes it galling to somebody like me or you or Alex. Um, but it was just sort of striking to see uh, like a Reagan revolution, you know, solicitor general sort of be equally alarmed just at, you know, what, what's, you know, what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I mean, I think it shows that there is no universal opinion, regardless of what side of the aisle that you're coming from, but it's just a really trying time. And, and primarily because of the legitimacy of the court, not that it's ever like truly been legitimate, but people have, people do have a better understanding of of the issues that really surround it because of everything that has been going on and the confirmations that we've seen and McConnell refusing to bring Merrick Garland up for even a debate, forget a vote and just seeing who and really having a better understanding because of access to information, who's actually sitting on the court and being able to question their legitimacy and being there um, and, and the legitimacy of it even being set up the way that it is in a way that hasn't existed in the past. Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, the, the legitimacy just comes from the people, really. Um, yes. I mean, that's, which... that's really, you know, and it's un- unfortunate to like bring this back, but it was it was something that former Governor Cuomo said all the time, even while he wasn't telling the whole truth. That if you don't, you know, if you don't have the trust of the people, you're not going to get anywhere. Like you can't, there aren't enough law enforcement officers or members of the military anywhere in this country to enforce, you know, everything all day long. There has to be some trust that the laws are there for a reason. And a lot of that is what's lost right now. We don't have faith in the people that are governing us. And and partially because of, of behaviors like what former Governor Cuomo did. We don't trust what people are saying to us. We don't trust, you know, the desires and the will of the people that are governing. Um, so that is really what is like harming their legitimacy is people just don't trust them anymore. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they get it back, really. Um, I don't know where this goes. I mean, to me, it just seems like it's just going to get worse. I mean, the there's the the abortion, you know, 
the the abortion case coming up um, that you know there's a good chance they'll try to overturn Roe v. Wade. I don't know. I mean, the fact that they're sensitive to criticism makes me think that they might not uh, overturn Roe v. Wade because they don't want like people with uh, pitchforks like outside of the Supreme Court. But I don't know. I don't know where this goes. Let's be clear. There's going to be people outside the Supreme Court with pitchforks, no matter how they come down on this case. There may be more people outside with pitchforks if they come down on the side of overturning Roe versus Wade. But there's still definitely going to be a group of people, um, you know, with really inappropriate pictures and pitchforks outside if they don't overturn Roe versus Wade. And the important thing to remember is that we already went through this once already um, during the 91, 92 court season where everyone was like pretty thoroughly convinced that Roe v. Wade was going to get overturned by the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case. And surprisingly, it didn't. It really ate into the Roe versus Wade case. Um, it, you know, they, they held in that case that the central holding of Roe was still valid and true and that women did have a right to an abortion. However, they changed the way that the court was supposed to evaluate those cases um, and to evaluate especially a lot of the things that we've seen pop up in the last 30 years of parental consent laws and, and different, you know, restrictions that exist Uh, It really changed that standard that the court evaluates the cases, but it didn't actually overturn it. Um, So while there is a very, very real possibility it could be overturned, they could just eat into it more and let the central holding of Roe stick, but make it easier to create these laws that make it harder for people to access abortion care. Yeah, that seems likely. They'll just uh, make it easier for crazy state legislatures to make crazy laws. I could see that happening. Alex, are you going to say something? No, that kind of answered my question. I was going to ask, like, <laughs> let's say, like, it does, well, let's say, like, if the Supreme Court does, um, in a way, overturn Roe v. Wade, is there anything that the states can do to better protect women's reproductive rights? Yes, there is. And there are states that have done it, but there are a lot of states. I don't remember exactly which ones have it, but there are quite a few states that have trigger laws. And what that means in this case is they already have laws on the books that say if if or when the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, abortion will be illegal in this state. So they're primarily Southern states that have this, that are full, like already prepared, like Roe versus Wade is overturned. It will be illegal to seek out or perform an abortion in that state. New York has somewhat of the opposite in the Reproductive Health Care Act that passed um, after the 2018 election. So in the 2019 cycle for New York state law that actually strengthened protections Um, It moved our, we were not, we were one of the first states to actually legalize abortion again in 1970. So we did it before Roe versus Wade. Um, But because abortion had been in our criminal law 
it had been governed by our criminal law at the time. They didn't actually change that. They just modified the criminal law to no longer make it a crime. So the Reproductive Health Care Act that was part of the Women's Equality Package that passed in 2019 moved abortion law from the criminal code to the health and education code and said that it doesn't matter. Part of the law, essentially what it said, I'm summarizing this poorly because I'm really bad at summarizing recently, uh, but part what part of what the law said is essentially it doesn't matter if Roe versus Wade gets overturned, um, abortion care will still be accessible and allowable in New York State. And then all the all the states with you know re- Republican governors legislatures can basically do the opposite if uh, if Roe's overturned. So we already have a. a high amount of abortions that happen in New York state. Um, and it's because people do come here from other states to seek that care and that will continue. There will be like abortion tourism, basically where people have to come to New York and other states that where it's still legal, um, just in greater numbers than that actually happens now. Um, there's actually a really good documentary that speaks to this it used to be on Netflix. I watched it a couple of years ago. I'm not sure if it's still on there. It's called The Vessel. And they help women, um, you know, seeking abortion care in, in countries where it's not legal. And what they do is it's a vessel that like travels the coast of Europe um, and, and different places. And basically, if you go out into international water, it's no longer illegal. So they don't do um, medical abortions. They do uh, like pill ones. And there is medication, I can't pronounce the name of it, that you can get for other medical ailments. And they um, have a hotline where people can call and they will teach you how to make the complaints to your doctor to make it seem like you have the ailments that that medication will cure when in reality people are doing that because they're pregnant and they need it to induce an abortion and they get more and more calls from the Southern states of the U S have been going up in recent years as it has become more difficult to seek out an abortion because there are ways of using other medications to do that. Not. That is wild. Yeah. Yeah. And and just like bearing in mind too, that like, this is very, this, like these laws are very targeted at, you know, people of lower, who just don't have money. Like I, like just, just to be like perfectly honest, like I, you know, have a decent salary. I have a family. I have a mother who owns her house. Like if I needed money and I had to leave this country to get an abortion, I would do it. Like I would, find a way. Like I would borrow money from my mother. I would, you know, (laughs) borrow money from my partner's family. Like I would get on a plane and I would fly somewhere where I needed it. Um, but not everybody has access to that. Not everybody has the ability to, you know, scrounge around for thousands of dollars to buy a plane ticket and go somewhere and then pay for it. Because obviously my insurance, if it's not going to cover it in the U S it's not going to cover it if I fly to Canada. Um, so it's really, it really is targeted at people who just don't have the money. Like they're the, the mistresses of elected officials, the, the spouses of elected officials will always find a way to get an abortion, even if they are, you know, pregnant by somebody who voted against this, like they will get them out of the state, they will get them out of the country. And if you have money, you will still have access 
to these services just at a higher cost. It's just another issue where, you know, having money makes it not a problem and people that don't have money have the problems. I mean, it's just, just like with, you know, the, the check cashing that we talked about before the payday loans. Um, I mean, when it comes to like criminalization of drugs, like rich people aren't the ones that are, you know, getting, you know, thrown in jail for like minor drug offenses. Um, And so that, that sort of ties into um, so the, it ties into the Pandora papers and I will get to why, but um, so, you know, for those who don't know um, these Pandora papers came out this week Um, It's a set of 12 million documents that the International Consortium of Independent Journalists came across and made available to a number of outlets. I was reading through some of the articles that the Washington Post has since put out, um, and it's documents from 14 different firms that help essentially help rich people set up trusts um, to avoid avoid taxes or they do it to like launder money to hide money associated with crimes. And, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's come out, you know, the the Putin mistress was discovered uh, um, or I don't don't know if they knew that she was a mistress, but like they found out that she had this house Um, there. The the King Abdullah of Jordan is a, uh, as named in the documents, the presence of four African nations, Czech Republic's prime minister, the president of Ukraine, presence of the Dominican Republic in Ecuador. Um, not a lot of U.S. Uh, billionaires are are in the papers for whatever reason. Because they know how to hide um, their money. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, I guess they just don't use these firms. At some point, and somewhere in one of these articles, they like explained like why they weren't like brought up into this. But yes, as I think that is a big part of it is that they just um, know how to hide their money. Um, so, oh yeah, oh here's a, here there I found it. I found the section. Um, so after talking about how you know the U.S. billionaires aren't in there, financial experts said billionaires in the United States tend to pay such low tax rates that they have less incentive to seek offshore havens. So it's even more depressing. It's not even worth them hiding their money because they already know they're not going to have to pay on it anyway. Exactly. Um, so, and then how, so a lot of this, you know, is different, you know, offshore, uh, you know, jurisdictions, other places, but South Dakota is a big place for this type of uh, behavior, Alaska, Delaware, Nevada, and New Hampshire. Um, So, you know, everybody knows, I feel like that, you know, the ultra rich, the super wealthy, you know, the billionaires, whatever, they get sketchy with their money. (laughs) What's that? Not your rich uncle, the like, we're going to get that no one's ever actually going to get to. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, like oligarchs and robber barons and like everybody knows these people, uh, you know, avoid paying taxes. They do sketchy stuff with their money to hide it. So I'm think I'm reading all this and I'm thinking like, 
like what is like so what it like what's the issue here like what's the social justice issue like and i think sort of what we were alluding we we're talking about before is that like they have they're able to skirt like laws and regulations that people with less money are subject to so like when it comes to what can you do about it like that's sort of what i was thinking like what can because you know iridian you know the the uh godmother of the podcast was telling me how she saw people on twitter were just saying like okay we have the panama papers we have pandora papers but nothing happens like what can we even do like i don't i'm, I'm not sure um you know maybe it, it would be more uh we would get closer to justice by just like making things less of a burden on the people with less money rather than like trying to stop the rich from hiding their money. Cause like they're all, they're just always going to find a way. I mean, one of the things that was in, you know, some of the articles is like they could see in the documents, I think after the Panama papers came out that like certain Russian oligarchs, like they saw them having to like shift things and it did like, hurt them in some respects like it caused consternation and they lost money they had to do a bunch of stuff but like really like what's like that's not that's not a remedy like this is still going to happen so like i feel like you know money laundering and hiding money related to crime is its own thing like like yeah you get you get lawmen to go after and chase the criminals but when it comes to like avoiding taxes i mean i think it just making it easier on the rest of us is how to like get to a fair outcome rather than, um, you know, trying to necessarily stop the rich. Although, I mean, there, there is a, there are, there is legislation that can, um, you know, be passed. It's just super esoteric. So I don't know, we need like Elizabeth Warren on here or something to like explain like like how how to actually do something about this. So I don't even know. Maybe it is possible with legislation. Like it is it is legislation that you know caused these people to have to change how they did things. But you know inevitably they'll just find another way. So I don't I don't know. I'm kind of at a loss. Like in my head when I was thinking about this, I was like, oh, like for one, it's not like new or whatever I feel like we've been joking around for years about like people having offshore bank accounts like bank accounts in the Cayman Switzerland the Bahamas like it's literally been a joke for years but it's just like how exactly like do you stop it like in my head like one of the things I was thinking about was, like you can like try to go after the firms but then billionaires will just find new firms or like they'll go through like shell companies and like just find deeper ways to hide their money but it's like if they make I feel like now like since it's out and it's in the public and it's like in our faces it's like we now have to like look at what is it like people in charge be like okay like you guys have to fix this because clearly like they have the money they're hiding it and the burden of paying taxes has always been on us like the middle class it's like we're literally carrying like the weight of this country while they get to hide their money. And then like, even after like, let's say like you tax what they do report, they still have it. Like, it's just, it's so crazy. It is crazy. And it's not even just the middle class. It's also people who just don't have money um, that 
are still, you know, paying taxes and not just paying taxes, like they're paying fees. And that's really what, what gets me more than anything else is it doesn't matter if you make a billion dollars, a million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred dollars last year. Like you still have to pay the same fee to get a driver's license in New York state. You still have to pay the same tolls when you drive over the bridge, you know, the same amount of money to, to just do anything, um, you know, in life. And like, these are just minor inconveniences to people with a lot of money, um, who are barely being taxed on that money in the first place to pay these tiny little fees. And then you're still paying, you know, taxes out of your paycheck. And because, you know, you're middle-class or because you're not even making it into the middle-class yet, like that's, that's your income. So you can't hide it. There's no way to hide your paycheck that your company that you're working for is giving you every week. And on top of that, you have to pay all these fees just to exist in society. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to like, you know, how are, um, how are regular people sort of like, how does, how do these Pandora papers and offshore accounts relate to regular people? Um, I, I, like what I, you know, what we've been talking about is essentially just fairness. Like, you know, they're able to get away with stuff that other people aren't. Um, and, but one thing that's sort of brought up sometimes is depriving the government of tax revenue, which that's where, like my modern monetary theory brain sort of pushes back because it's it's not depriving money for the government to spend because the government that has monetary sovereignty like the like the U.S. can just print money to spend on things, um, but but dep- I mean so that that's that's why it was sort of like confounding to me a little bit, um, and I don't think like. I mean, well, it, but like politically though, imagine, okay, the Pandora papers come out and some regulations change and everybody knows that it's going to raise a trillion dollars of tax revenue, like being recaptured. There would probably be more political will to do more things for the country. So like, that's, that's another sort of area that Unfortunately, I don't even think there's a lot of political will around this. There's so many people that are like, oh, that's just smart. You know, business. It's like even people with no money are like, oh, that's smart business. Like if I had money, I'd I'd hide it too. Or people who think like don't tax these people a lot of money because one day I'm going to be rich and I don't want to have to pay taxes. Not realizing you're you're just never going to get to that level of rich. Like it's so impossible to get to that level of rich of like offshore accounts and private jets that like we're working against our own best interests in basically siding with our oppressor. Not basically we're siding with our oppressors. Yeah. I love that. I love that mentality of like, what if I'm a billionaire? I don't want the laws to be bad to billionaires because I might become one one day. And that's part of the problem with this, like selling of the American dream that like, anybody can become a billionaire. Like, all right, I guess like, yes, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> like in the theory. Your taxes. Yeah. yeah. But um, something more related to the rest of us, I think it came out today. Um, it was with the, 
Yeah. So Jess, you want to sort of give a breakdown of this, the student loan development? Yeah. So basically it's still a little, um, it's still a little like up in the air just because it's brand new. It literally came out this morning. So I don't have every detail on it and we're going to have to see how it works, but in an effort to reform public student loan forgiveness, um, it's actually public service loan forgiveness, but I am going to keep accidentally calling it public student loan forgiveness. Um, in an effort to reform this program, which was started in 2007, the government is giving us a one year, uh, I'm going to call it open access time. It's a window of opportunity for people to, um, get themselves enrolled in this and basically get to count previous, um, payment and to a certain extent, non-payment of your student loans. Um, so this program was started in 2007. It has largely been an utter failure at actually forgiving people student loans. Um, a very small handful of people have actually benefited from this. I actually met one this year and was in such shock over the fact that they actually had their student loans forgiven. Did you um, get their autograph? I did not get their autograph, but they are dating someone that uh, I am related to. So I could get it for you if you want me to. <laughs> okay, um, they're they're not leaving my life anytime soon. <laughs> so <laughs> I was so, so, so excited for them individually, but it's largely been a complete failure. Um, it has been difficult to navigate, difficult for people to understand. Um, and they are giving us a one-year period to basically, it's like, it's like open season. So I encourage everyone to take advantage of it. This program allows people who are working um, either for the government uh, or nonprofit organizations. Uh, so this, you know, this includes schools. There is actually a separate program specifically for public school teachers. Um, but it's going to impact a lot of social workers just because if you're working for a non qualifying nonprofit organization, um, which is, you know, places that a lot of social work students work, um, you have to work for 10 years. It doesn't have to be consecutive. Um, if you, you have to work full time for 10 years, but it doesn't have to be in a row. So if you are a student right now who is working at a nonprofit organization, decided to come back to school and left your full-time job for something part-time or, or just not to work while you're in school, um, you can go back and basically claim that time. And when you go back to work after you graduate, you can continue on towards your 10 years and they will both count. This has always been true. Um, but people don't, don't really realize that it's always been true that you didn't have to work consecutively. However, the program up until now, you had to be working full-time at a qualifying employer. You had to be uh, enrolled in a certain payback category, um, payment category. Um, and you had to make the payment on time in order to get this to qualify. So now what they're doing is they're opening up this time period. It only counts payments going back. It only counts time going back to 2007. There are, there are also in the past, you had to have a specific type of loan. Um, so in addition to everything else, you had to have a specific type of loan, which only started really being given out, um, you know, the 2009, 2010 academic year. So if you had these previous loans, um, which were, 
I always say this in the wrong order. It's FFELP loans. They did not qualify. If you currently hold those loans and you've been paying them, you can consolidate into the direct loan, which is the loan you need. Um, and they will count the payments that you have been making on the FFELP loan once it is consolidated into a direct loan. Um, and basically, in the past, you always had to, to meet all these very stringent requirements. And now everyone who holds student loans should log in, check to log into the FAFSA website, um, into your account, the federal student aid website, and, and check to see if your employer is a qualifying employer um, and check to see if previous employers have been qualifying employers and get your paperwork filled out to see if you can claim back any time since 2007 um, because it will just get you closer to student loan forgiveness. There are people who have had certain months and cer certain payments not certified in the past. Um, you can ask them to look at those payments. I believe they're actually going to do it automatically, but I, I say you should ask them to look at those payments because they're going to miss some people. But you can ask them to go back and look at payments that were denied in the past. Um, they also are, are loosening up the work requirements a little bit, not much. Before, it always had to be that you had to work full time. Now, if you work multiple jobs at one place, that equal 30 hours or more, even though there are different part-time jobs, that could potentially qualify you for some student loan forgiveness. So I just really encourage everyone to log in and see their own stuff just to, to, to try. It's worth a shot to see if you could even get a little bit of time towards forgiveness. And it's only this this open access period, as I'm going to call it, is only good until October of 2022. So you have to do it now, especially if you're someone like myself who holds some of my loans or these older FFELP loans. Um, you need time to consolidate them and then submit your paperwork. And all of this can take time. So doing it sooner rather than later is better. Yeah. So the article that came out said that since 2007, only 5,500 borrowers got their loans erased and that 90% of applicants were rejected. Um, and this failure. is, and this is for, program. and this is for people who have pay, like worked a qualifying job and made payments for 10 years. Like what? They should just, they should from year one, like they, you shouldn't have to make payments if you're working in one of these jobs because you don't make enough as it is. That's what the program should be. So like the fact that the fact that, oh, we're making it less complicated. And like the agency said that 550,000 borrowers are now closer to forgiveness. 22,000 uh, will allow uh, the changes will immediately allow 22,000 people to have their loans canceled um, and then another 27,000 if they could get their pay previous payments certified. Um, it's like, so, you know, basically they're taking some hoops out and some, like, I don't know if, if Joe Manchin read this article and wept, but like, you know, they just, they got rid of like, like different types of sort of, it's not means testing, but it's these like administrative hoops and red tape that, uh, you know, that are always getting in the way of benefits. And even after that, it's for one year, it's after 10 years of payments in a qualifying job. 
and it and like yeah, yeah. Well, remember like, this that's... one year is just open access so basically what they're allowing people to do is to go back and say i already paid it's not like a year from now if you start like if you only started paying your loans today it's not like a year from now they're going to be forgiven it's like you have to like go back and claim your time basically um, but there's so many things that are wrong with this. I, I also believe that 27,000 number is probably low. I mean, the, the 27,000 that could potentially be eligible, like there are probably more people out there. And I imagine that they're going to be inundated with applications soon because there's so many people that I've even just talked to today that are like, I never signed up for it. It was so complicated. I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, now's the time to do it. Like they have made it easier. But if you want to talk about things they could have done, I mean, they could have automatically canceled loans. They could have reform, you know, they could reform the program. I was speaking to someone else about this today, where instead of having to make payments for 10 years, like after every year you get X cut off, like X amount cut off of your loans. Right now, you get zero dollars taken off of your loans until you hit the 10-year mark and then they all of a sudden disappear. Like, why are we doing that? So you have to work 10 years to get everything. There's no in-between whatsoever. It's not like you work for a year and they take 10, 20, 50 grand off your loans. It's all or nothing with this program. And it still sounds really complicated. <laughs> it is. It's it's still so it's still really complicated and it's going to frustrate some people out of doing it, but it is allowing you to back it, like to do things after the fact and before you could never do things after the fact. Like you couldn't, if you were signed up for the long, wrong loan program, for the wrong repayment program, none of it would count because you had to have on-time payments for the payment to count. So if there was one little thing wrong, you'd lose it. And then what a lot of people were doing is they were working multiple jobs. Understandably, when you're in a low-paid job, you know, you're going to seek out higher pay and you're going to leave jobs. They wouldn't have their time certified by their employer. So they would have to go back and get it certified after 10 years. And who knows if the company's even open or if HR has access to your records. And it was just such a disaster. So this one year period is really just allowing people to go back in a way that we weren't allowed to before. So while it's so unbelievably frustrating and it's still going to be time consuming, I encourage people to do it because why would anybody continue to pay a corporation? Because most of us are paying a corporation that is handling the loans the government gave us. Why would you continue to pay a corporation if you don't have to, if you don't have a legal obligation to pay them, get out of it. Even if it requires hours of paperwork, Take that money and go do something else. Go on vacation, buy a new car, do something else with it. <laughs> and uh, with that, um, on that fun note, we'll uh, end for the week. Um, thanks, as always, to everybody for listening. Thanks, Jess, uh, for joining me. Thanks, Alex, for making your debut. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and as always... Thank you to Iridian Falcone for inspiring the podcast and for our logo and to Vinny Alfano of Anonymous Hair Salon in Soho uh, for the theme song. And I, I've thought of this recently, like he didn't tell me to give his salon a shout out, but I feel like it's only right to <laughs> give a plug for the free uh, theme song. But yeah, see everybody next week. Have a good one. See you next week.